you've got this thing called the cathode and it's a little cylinder inside the tube and you've got to heat it up with the thing called the heater and the heater's like a light bulb filament and it gets hot and it heats up the cathode and the cathode has electrons that jump off of it and are flying towards this thing called the anode. And in between it, there's a thing called the grid. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Today's episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is sponsored by Roswell Pro Audio, maker of handcrafted microphones in California. Inspired design and impeccable attention to detail will help you capture a gorgeous vintage sound without the vintage price tag. Check out their beautiful line of microphones at roswellproaudio.com. You may already know that using true analog gear is one of the best ways to create a great record. Yet increasingly, we live in a digital world, recording and mixing inside the computer. So what if you could have the best of both worlds? Tegeler Audio Manufacturer is bridging the analog-digital divide by creating high-end analog gear like the Schwerkraft Maschine compressor and the Raumzeitmaschine reverb whose knobs you can control remotely using a plug-in in your DAW or their many analog units like the Cream bus compressor with mastering EQ, or the VeriTube recording channel that let you save your settings using a custom recall sheet plugin, offering a complete line of pro audio gear from compressors to EQs to reverbs and beyond. Now you can get a pro analog sound while benefiting from the power of digital. Let your DAW help you move your knobs so that your music can move you. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about Tegeler Audio Manufactor. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Ivana Manley, CEO and sole owner of Manley Laboratories, makers of high-end audio equipment. Inspired by her stepfather, who was a part owner of Ampeg in the early 1970s, Ivana moved to California in 1989 to begin working in audio at VTL. She worked her way through every segment of the company, eventually managing the Manly Laboratories factory, sales, distribution, and customer service. Ivana took over Manly Labs in 1999 and has since been running the ship, releasing many new and improved products over the past two decades. Some of the classic gear from Manly Labs includes the massive passive EQ, the variable mu limiter compressor, the Voxbox channel strip, and many more, including a complete line of hi-fi components. And more recently, Manly has collaborated with UAD to create a line of plugins for these classic processors. Much more than just a captain of industry, Ivana is also an educator, speaker, photographer, artist, vintage auto and motorcycle enthusiast, sometimes mountaineer, and is known to occasionally ride her Harley Davidson across the country just for fun. I've had the pleasure of hearing Ivana speak a couple of times at Welcome to 1979 Recording Summit, and I'm thrilled to be able to invite her here onto the show. Please welcome Ivana Manley to Recording Studio Rockstars. Ivana, are you ready to rock? Yes, sir. Thanks, Lidge. Thanks so much. It was cool to go read your um, 
your bio on the website and learn more about you. Like I said, I, I always knew I liked you when I would see you speak at Welcome to 1979, um, but it was just cool learning more about how you got into this. And I didn't realize that you had come from sort of a family legacy of audio um, with your dad at Ampeg as well. Yeah, like I, like uh, we said, uh, he was my stepdad. And so I he married my mother after he had sold Ampeg. He sold Ampeg in 1972 to Magnavox and uh, he hooked up with my mom in 76. So um, I didn't actually grow up with all the Ampeg activity going on. My step-siblings were, you know, at Woodstock and hanging out with the Rolling Stones and whoever, you know, Johnny Cash or whoever else they were running into in those in those awesome days with Ampeg and the SVTs and all that. Right but uh, unfortunately, I missed all that, but I, I got to hear the stories, and those stories um, definitely inspired me. So did you grow up around audio, a lot of tube audio gear and, and stereo component systems and all that kind of stuff, though? Well, my, my folks had a, a Fisher 500C and a pair of AR2AX loudspeakers and a Gerard turntable that would be pretty typical for people in the mid to late sixties. And, uh, I did grow up with that and I was totally into rock and roll from a very early age. I, I remember, you know, being in preschool listening to Led Zeppelin. I think Led Zeppelin was my favorite group when I was in kindergarten, you know? <laughs> so I was, I didn't really listen to a lot of children's music. Definitely. I listened to a lot <laughs> of rock and roll from a, from an early age and I, I still have a total penchant for early seventies pop music and rock music. And it's probably I'd probably settle down to be my favorite genre when I... All right, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, though. So you weren't listening to children's music per se, but do you remember Free to Be You and Me? Do you remember that album when it came out? No. No, you didn't hear that one? Okay. It was like no. a classic, bizarre um, record that was... It was like this bizarre kind of gender-bending record from the 70s where kids, like Willie, grows up and wants to play with a doll and stuff like that. It was... a. Uh, it was great. <laughs> yeah, I was the girl building tree houses and dreaming about, you know, building a a little roadster push car or something like that. That's <laughs> so great. And so you're did, you're collecting I did that without the album. And you're way into cars and motorcycles now too, right? Oh yeah. I I I was an Alfista. I had a whole bunch of Alfa Romeos and I had a Lancia and I still have my 1969 Volkswagen bus. I nice. did restore that same old Volkswagen bug a few years ago, but I gave it back to the family that had given it to me. Um, I have a Maserati Quattroporte for sale if anyone wants it, because actually my daily driver these days is the Chevy Volt um, nice. when I'm not on a motorcycle. Right so. on. Well, I used to also have a VW camper bus, and I think it was a 69 um, and had the pop top and everything, and I love it. Oh, my that God. Thing. We're it. little twins because you had a bug as well. I know. It's bizarre. And I used to, um, when I was in school in St. Louis, I put in these big kind of oversized box speakers in the back, and then we'd throw the side door open and we'd drive around just cranking Public Enemy at full volume. I just love Just go around the, the streets of St. Louis. <laughs> My bus does have a good hi-fi system in it. In, uh, in fact, you could probably master record in it. it sounds oh, that's so great. <laughs> Well, so tell us a little bit more about how you kind of got started in this. You know, you had some inspiration, but um, as I recall, you were maybe in, um, were you at Columbia University in New York or was I mis misunderstanding? I, I was, I was studying music there and uh, more influential than that. I was uh, my high school band. I was 
such the band geek and um, I played saxophone. Right? Yeah. yeah, saxophones, clarinet. And as soon as I got my braces off, I learned how to play trumpet a little bit. I wasn't that good at it, but um, and that was the thing when I was studying music, I was I was being qualified to be perhaps a band director or a teacher, but I didn't want to go into that. So I was uh, I also was quite gifted at the time with um, graphic arts and drawing and and so on, illustration and. I was really torn between artistic, my artistic talents and my musical talents, but I wasn't that good in either of them. Not really, really. I, I was know, I saw your Oh, thanks. But uh, so uh, I got fed up with New York, like very frustrated and depressed with the, the winters were getting long and gray and slushy and there were a lot of homeless. And I was, I was, I was getting turned around in the in the day where I was sleeping in the daytime and then up all night, so I was missing the sunshine. Yeah, and all those sounds from California, all the music from California, were just calling my name in films as well. And I I just had this dream to to get to California, so I drove that Volkswagen Bug across the country and oh cool through my dad's contacts. Um, made a connection with the Manleys out in Chino, California at a company called Vacuum Tube Logic of America. And I just started on the production line, just learning how to solder just right off, right off the bat. The Mexicans were teaching me how to solder. And I was like, damn it, I should have taken Spanish. I had taken French. <laughs> oh, yeah, je parle un peu de français aussi. Oh, oui. Oh, oui. <laughs> yeah, they, that was something they did to, the, to us out on the East Coast. It's like we got French classes, not That's not right. <laughs> so eventually when I went back to get to finish my degree, the last class I took at Columbia was uh, Spanish. So I had about an equivalent of a year of Spanish class compressed into a summer. Nice. And uh, I'm quite decent with Spanish these days, too. Well, so you put in a lot of time um, out in California learning sort of every aspect of the trade until, um, you know, for the past two decades, you have owned and run Manly Laboratories, one of the, you know, most prestigious audio equipment makers. Um, give us an introduction to Manly Labs. What is Manly Labs? What do you guys do for people who don't know? Thanks. Um, originally, it started as a higher end, like nth degree engineered audiophile uh audiophile tube amplifiers, basically. And David Manley created the Manley brand within VTL to actually just to be able to sell twice as much gear to, you know, Taiwan and Hong Kong. At the time, um, those were humongous audiophile markets for us. And so he basically doubled the market by being able to have two different distributors um, selling substantially the same product, but rebadged. So the Manly brand started as an audiophile product. In 1989, um, there was a large religious group uh, soliciting a lot of audiophile designers for a microphone preamplifier design. And at the time, I think Mark Levinson submitted something and David Manley did and, and others. And David's mic pre-design won the shootout. And so they ordered 60 pieces of uh, a Manly Mic Pre, a brand new unit, and presto, we were in the pro audio business. That's how, that was the first launch. That was the first product, and that's how we got into it. And then after that, uh, we were working on a, a Pultec equalizer version, and the microphones started being developed, and a lot of products came out in the in the first couple years of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, these days, uh, we're we're like ninety percent pro audio and only ten percent audiophile products. But we do see, yeah. con- we do continue to serve both markets. But the the pro audio market is definitely the stronger market out there in the world, anyway. Well, I didn't really know about the um, the hi-fi components and stuff like that until I was doing more research, and I was I thought it was cool. I mean, I I also got um, really fascinated with uh, you know, like, um, audiophile stuff and, and love it. Anytime I ever get a chance to hear a real audiophile system, it's pretty amazing. And I'm reminded that one day I'd like to have a listening room like that. And it's funny to me how my control room in the studio has never been somehow studio control rooms. They're not quite the same thing as, you know, like high-end doctor, um, audiophile listening room systems are, or at least in my experience, you know, um, do you do you have any thoughts on that? Is that a do do you find that as well? Do you find there's a difference between um, what somebody gravitates toward if they're an audiophile versus what they gravitate towards if they are putting together a recording studio? Oh, for sure. It, there's a lot of psychology I think involved in both camps, and sometimes you you see a lot of overlap. Um, uh wow the the um, the hobby of home recording, I think, has really flourished in the last couple of years, in the last decade, say, and that's that's just opened up a whole a whole uh, market for people recording at home and yeah. Um, but there, what's okay? What's interesting there? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll boil it down. The audio files. Some in general, sometimes need to be told what they're hearing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I get guys that call up and they're like, and they're, they seem very insecure about what they're hearing and they need confirmation of what they're hearing. Like they'll, they'll ask a lot of leading questions like, Hey, is it true that blah, 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 blah. And then your answer, you know, is usually, yep, that's right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> whereas, uh, with the, with the proliferation of, of um, computer-based recording in the last two decades, people, the recording thing, it's not they're being told how to hear, they're watching what they're hearing. So people recording with their eyeballs instead of listening. Yeah. It, I find it kind of funny. It, I think at the crux of it all is we we need to keep working on on listening education for everybody, for audiophiles and for uh professional recording people, you know, and teaching people how to listen, what to listen for. A lot of these things, in my experience, are not innate. I remember when we first came out with the first limiter compressor, and I was working on the QC bench, um, getting getting the units working off the production floor so we could ship them. And I never was trained as an audio uh, recording engineer. So I'm, I'm like, okay, well, okay, I've read about limiters I see theoretically what they do. You put this much in and you get that much out. And as you do this, this happens and so on. But uh, what do you use them for? I don't understand how or why you would, okay, I can understand you want to manage levels, but what else, you know? And I couldn't hear when I first started listening to them, like, well, I didn't notice like what it was doing to like the snare drum if you're using a fast limiter or something like that. And somebody had to show me you know, like, hey, watch it when I do this, listen to what the snare drum does. And then I would pay attention to it and, yeah. oh, okay, got it. 
or even at Welcome to 1979 when they did the compressor shootout thing and compared a bunch of things. And then they're like, see how it kind of equalizes the sound and the whole tonality changed. I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So yeah. that that it's important, I think, for everybody to learn how to listen. Um, and I think the main problem of modern recording with meters and waveforms all over your screen is people are recording with their eyes, not their ears. And then the audio files, they read, people read a lot and they need to s sit down maybe with somebody more experienced and um, learn how to listen to their system and, and these things. And well, so they develop confidence in what they're hearing. You're uh, hearing you talk about this. It's sort of um, spurring a bunch of thoughts in my head, uh, it reminds me when you talk about, um, you know, having to see it in action versus having somebody, you're reading about it. I remember when I was in architecture school and they would ask me to write about architecture, I just was terrible at it because I was just like, how do you write about something that you just need to experience, you know? Right. And I think it, it's, it's that, that famous, way with audio sometimes. Here's a famous quote, dancing about architecture or something. What does that go? <laughs> well, I know, I know there's one about um, architecture is liquid music. Right. But I don't know if that's one you're thinking of. No, it's another one. Um, and then it's in, like writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Right. There you go. I like, like that. that. Yeah. yeah. And I felt the same way, you know, even in recording school when they would, um, and I, I get mixed feedback from different people. Some people really like these. I didn't, but they would ask me to draw those bubble charts to describe a mix. And I was just like, what, what is that? I mean, that's a, it's a chart with some bubbles on it. That doesn't right. mean music to me. But um, Venn, well, those Venn diagrams are useful sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so um, it reminded me as you're as you're talking about audiophile versus studio, and then and then looking at what you're doing. I guess the difference is when you're in the audiophile position, you're in the act of listening, and when you listen, you're hoping to discover something through what you're hearing that you maybe hmm. didn't know was there. And sure. when you're in the pro audio position, you're in the act of trying to manipulate and create the sound that's coming out of the speaker towards you. So it really is a totally different way of, of listening for stuff. Sure. The audio file experience, I mean, it should, in the, at the very first step, it should be about the music and, and then secondly about enjoyment. And then you, and then about kind of geeky, like, Oh, the imaging of this or the, Oh, notice the spatial presentation of that or whatever, I yeah. guess. Well, I just remember yeah. getting really excited. It's like, oh, you can hear the finger on the upright string because right. the system is so great, you know? That's awesome. Um, all right, cool. <laughs> well, so let me, let me keep jumping forward. I um, uh, appreciate you bearing with me as I go on tangents. I have a tendency to do that. But um, I like to ask guests to share an inspirational quote, and I know you said you had something pretty funny to share. Oh, well, yeah, I, I did put the dogs outside earlier so they wouldn't... <sighs> Uh, make noise during the interview. But yeah, one of my favorite quotes um, that that's really that I have to repeat to myself a lot being the manager of a company is, you know, don't hire a dog and bark for him. So what like that, that means is, is and what it means to me is I, I really try to empower the people around me to do their job. And I do everything I can to not micromanage them. It's a, it's a tough balance because when you get somebody new in, you know, you want to train them, you want to, to share, I want to share my experience with, with the new guy, you know, um, so they don't make the same mistakes I did. 
and, and shortcut that pain or expense as it were, you know, like, yeah. Hey, for four color brochure printing, you cannot use a 72 DPI photograph, you know, or, you know, just, <laughs> just simple things like that. But, um, you know, so it's a balance between educating and assisting and, you know, getting the learning curve going and just like, uh, if it just, I'll just do it myself, you know, so that it's still a tough balance to achieve. And that the thing with small business is that when you start off, you've got no money, you've got no resources, you don't have money to go hire people to just do all these tasks for you. And then you end up just having to learn how to do them all yourself. And, um, yeah, it's still, <laughs> I still kind of go back to it as well, even though we're a much larger company than we, than we were 25 years ago or whatever. But sometimes still you, you hire people and it's like, eh, they're not really that good. I actually could do a better job than, than they could. And, um, well, my, my uncle once gave rough. me advice. He was um, a president of a university, and his advice was to just always hire, hire people that are smarter than you. That was his, his like, you go-to You strive advice. to. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I want, I want my people to be better than me. I agree completely. It's just every, you don't get that every time, though. You want, I want it. I want it every time, but it doesn't actually happen all the time. Well, I think there are, um, you know, our listeners, of course, are interested in the studio and making records. And I think we all have the experience of um, working with other people when it comes to, you know, maybe working with another engineer or a producer or a musician. And it's really that, that same idea translates. It's like when you can just bring in somebody who's just simply great, um, that's a a really good goal to have. And I, I actually am going to throw this um, idea of yours, this analogy onto, you know, into the computer as well. I think sometimes, you know, when you use the right gear, it's that same effect. It's like, if you can just pick a piece of gear that's already doing a great job of making something sound good for you, it's doing the barking. Maybe don't go tweak all the knobs, just like initially just let it do its thing. Sure. I see people, well, I, I, I don't, actually discourage it if they're just you know paying me more money but I, I see people just buy box after box after box after box and I remember one customer coming in my office and like he was he bought like five units already and he still hadn't he was just learning how to record he still hadn't turned any of them on and he was in to try to buy something else it's like dude just go back to your studio <laughs> and start using this equipment and see if you really do need to buy another equalizer, you know, you've got a lot of gear, dude, you know, and you've never even, you know, put a mic up on a guitar yet, you know, <laughs> so. That's great. Well, you know, yeah. that you're, you're, you're helping me leap forward to a question I was going to ask later, but um, the massive passive EQ is a wonderful, wonderful piece of gear. And at Welcome to 1979, the Recording Summit, you had one out, and I went over, and and I, I think I had used one before. I'm sure I've used one somewhere before, but I, you know, it hadn't been a while. So I, I went over and used it and started tweaking the knobs, and man, it sounded so good. And no, you, you know, you, I, you even commented on that on your website. You know, you get that kind of feedback a lot. People just say, why does it sound so good? But when you're talking about this guy buying a lot of gear, I had to ask myself, I was like, I want, does anybody ever put together like you know, kind of a studio setup where everything gets a massive passive for its EQ and a mix. Have you seen anybody set up a studio that way? I, well, I've seen 
manly massive passives and manly variable mu limiters just parked on the two bus all the ev- for everything absolutely yeah. that goes on quite a lot and again you might see that exact same combo in a mastering studio um such as bob ludwig you know he's got massive passives he's got six channels of massive passives and six channels of variable mu for surround work um oh, yeah right permanently parked on his mastering console so those two those two manly units have influenced probably uh, more music than you than you than we all know definitely wow. well they're beautiful pieces of gear they're built like Thank a you. tank um, I think when you first get to experience one of them in comparison to some of the gear that you might be used to you're like whoa this is this is built pretty solidly you know this is a different thing Um but uh, have you ever thought about making a console? Has that ever even crossed your radar? Like, you know, put all, all the stuff you know into a, a mixing console? Um, well, we, yeah, actually been there, done that, sort of. Um, <laughs> back in the 90s, we we had a customer who seemed to have a bunch of dollars enough to afford a, God, what was it, like a 14 or 12 track little console we had built with, with every uh, every channel had a manly Pultec in it, so it had oh, a manly nice. mic pre, and the Pultecs were were turned up, you know, vertically. We just uh, re-engraved them vertically, basically, and um, there was a mic pre, or there was an extra gain stage built into it, and then the, it was the Pultec passive EQ section, and then a bunch of faders, and I, I don't know what else was going on in there, but I did see that thing for sale recently, but. That that was a very primitive uh, console, definitely. That's pretty wild. Um, I'm going to just guess that that was Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> no, no. Um, then you know we built those 16 by two mixers. Those were little rack mount mixers, and there there seems to still be demand for those. Those we've kind of taken them out of production because they were a bit cumbersome to manufacture, and I think with some some attention and um, you know, like our, our newer power supplies and things like that and our newer build techniques, we could probably do a better job of that. So we could bring it into market at a at a better price as well to by making it easier to build. And that's something that we've been doing with a lot of our modern products. So we'll we'll take like the Manly L op limiter, which we've been building since the early nineties. We we just completely renovated it and changed the whole packaging in and all that and refine the circuit in the layout to make it more efficient to build in um and even added a, a ratio switch while we were at it and you know incorporated a lot of things we had learned over the decades to bring out that product as as a renovated product for a thousand dollars cheaper than it had been you know just mm-hmm. because we could build it faster in america well i imagine there's there's a you know, people don't always realize there's a big difference between the dream and an actual successful product that can be manufactured and taken to market and and have a life. And you've really learned to understand that balance. Well, thank you. It it also has to do with you know, um, you know what? How many are we going to sell? So if we built a hundred thousand dollar, you know, tube console or something, you know, how many? How long would it take to refine that design? How much engineering work would we have to put into it to design the thing? And then how long would it take us to get that investment back? How many a year would we actually sell? You know, five, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. It's, It's something we have to study every time we contemplate designing a new product. 
well, that's how it works. Let me ask you a couple more questions and then we'll jump right into the heart of talking about audio in the studio and stuff. And, um, you know, at the risk of, since we can't hear and see by example, all we get to do is talk about it. That's what we'll do on the podcast. But right. um, I like to ask guests also to kind of share an important failure story. So, you know, you've you've had wonderful success with Manly Labs. You've done all kinds of stuff. You, it can't always have been a smooth journey. Do you have any stories you'd like to share just about sort of a failure turned into a learning experience? Yeah, it's it's kind of an emotional thing. My uh, um, my first marriage to David Manley ended in divorce. He left the country in 1996 and um, moved to France. And it was a very traumatic time because he, he was a raving alcoholic at the time. And it was very difficult to try to work things out or renegotiate or any, or anything. So it, the frustration just built up so much. Finally, I was just, I, I used the anger that developed from that whole process to fuel my revenge, <laughs> which was through success. And mm -hmm. it was, it was uh, actually a good experience to be able to ch channel that energy. It was negative energy, but channel it into positive energy um, so the first product that I worked on after he left, you know, it was definitely fueled by, I'll show you how I can kick ass was the Vox box. And so I, I took, nice. you know, existing elements, things we had been making and I, I enhanced, uh, each one, you know, I added features to each thing and combined it into, into one product. And I did the, you know, the visual design on it, which was very ergonomic and, um, and I guess quite beautiful and all that. And, you know, when I, I remember first showing that to David Manley before we didn't talk anymore, but, um, mm -hmm. and he was like, blah, 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 blah. He was very dismissive of the whole thing because he was jealous as hell. <laughs> so, oh, sure. you know, that, and then that just fueled me more to, to try to create, uh, really cool products that really kicked ass. And it's like, I'll show you what you're missing out on. So that it was, um, it was good. It, it was a good experience overall. It was very difficult going through it at the time. And I was, I was still in my twenties. I was very young. Wow. And the what was the year of the box box? 1997. Okay. And yeah. uh, at the same time, I, I came up with the manly stingray amplifier design as well, which yeah. is a, an odd shaped, uh, really cool looking piece. And, I came up with that shape through like thinking about what would be a very symmetrical layout. So the signals treated very equally, you know, going through the amplifier and, uh, we developed new output transformers for it and, and, uh, really worked on the sound of, to try to make this little amplifier sound like a big amplifier. And that was, mm -hmm. we really, uh, tuned that when we developed the output transformers for it. And, um, again, that was, that was a, a real victory. It, um, cause it, it was taking the concept of an older amplifier that David had created and really finessing it and improving it in, um, making it my own design. And that was a victory that was taking a, a failure, a very tumultuous time and turning it into probably the most, the second most important time of the company, you know, where we had all these really awesome products. The massive passive came right after that as well. Oh, it did. Oh, okay. That's great. So you, that yeah. was massive. Passive was your, your, um, your product. 
Yeah, we were, I was fueled to kick ass in the, in the late nineties, you know, and, um, and that was before I legally owned the company, but, um, yeah, it was taking, taking a very difficult time and turning it into a massively successful time. Well, it's we very had, encouraging. I mean, I think yeah, we doubled the sale. The, the first year I took over the company without David Manley, I doubled the sales because I was running worldwide <laughs> sales for the company as well. So we're That's doing great. a lot of work a lot in those days. Right. There's a little Rocky theme for you. Definitely. Well, so very encouraging. I think we all go through, you know, these failure things that happen to us, whether it's, you know, accidentally erasing a song in the studio or, you know, going through an emotional thing like a divorce and trying to run a major company. Not all of us are trying to run major companies, but, you know, that being able to turn that into something positive and realize, as I think so many people do later in life is that like those, those failure points are the ones where you get the real learning experience to like, you know, supercharge your rockets for the next stage, which is cool to hear you talk about. And then on top of that, being a woman in an industry that has traditionally been very dominated by men. um, Maybe you can talk a little bit about that too. I mean, you know, what do you want to share to, um, the, the male and female listeners on the show about that experience for you? Well, I think, you know, coming up in the nineties, I was, I was still really young. And I think that was as much of, or more of a factor than being a chick, you know, um, to check according to your website. Yeah. Whenever, chick. whenever I'm on these women in audio panels, I mean, sometimes I kind of boil back in my own head, my own feelings. Like when I'm working and I'm typing or communicating or screwing something together or whatever, I'm not thinking about I'm a male or a female. I'm just, I've got a job to do and I'm doing that. And, yeah. um, uh, yeah, I, I've got kind of mixed views on that whole topic to tell you about that. It's, it's been being young and being also being with somebody who, at the time who was very insecure. And if, if I showed, you know, I'll give you an example. Like I was working on the bench one day and I, I had some unit, a preamplifier and it was, it was really noisy and I didn't really know a whole lot at the time. And, and I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm showing noise figure of minus 50 here. That that's not really good. Is it? And I, I read in stereo file, like, you know, I'm peeling through the, measurements john atkinson does of all the products in the magazine i'm like well this tube preamplifier has you know this other brand this noise floor is minus 80 god we need to get better don't we and so i'd I'd muck around with things and add some metal shields and then another time i i i took the transformer out and i put it on long wires and i moved it all around the chassis and i rotated it like 30 degrees and i found a, a null point that lowered the noise floor you know, 10 or 12 dBs or something. And I showed that to David Manley and he's like, that looks terrible. We can't do that. And, and it's like completely dismissive, like totally shooting me down. And it, and it was because he didn't think of it and it was his insecurities. And it was very frustrating being with somebody who was just, I don't, it it was like his own ego above the good of the company or the the betterment of a product. And that was incredibly frustrating. It's Mm -hmm. like, I've, 
just shown you with science that this thing is quieter if we just <laughs> tilt this thing 30 degrees. Are you saying literally she blinded me with science in that moment? <laughs> I know it. Yes, for real. But it was that was that was that was frustrating. I I don't know if it was because I was his wife or 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 I was younger or it was yeah. just all about his ego. I can't even figure it out. But it's, it would be impossible to the, isolate any anything from anything that else. That was the most frustrating thing in those early days. Was I was young and I was still learning, and I really was trying not to. And I still don't try to say things that I really don't know. You know, I try to be honest in my self-assessments and things. And mm. Well, I mean, it sounded like your focus was on just uh, quality and just the, you know, the science behind what you were doing. And you, you, you learned, you saw that something like, could be better and you, and you just who went for cares? it. Yeah. Who cares what, who thought of it? If, if, you know, one of my assembly people came in and showed me something that improved the product, I'd be like, hell yeah. It's like, it's not about me or him or whatever. It's about the product. Yeah. Well, I do yeah. think that's the kind of stuff that makes for better records. Um, so uh, way to go. But uh, let's you. let's jump forward to, um, I want to ask you some more geeky questions. So what are tubes and why are they important in audio? Why do tubes rule? <laughs> why do tubes I, rule? Well, first of all, what are they for, for people who maybe, maybe don't even tubes. know? Yeah, we most of our electronics are 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 built around the older technology that you know comes from the I don't know 1920s or whatever, and they use these old things called vacuum tubes. And older people might remember them in tube radios or very old tube televisions. And in the olden days, you take your tubes out of your radio and you go down to the Radio Shack or the drugstore and plug them into a machine and test your tubes. So. In the nineteen by the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties, vacuum tube equipment had really fallen out of favor, and solid state had replaced uh, so many tube designs. Except in guitar amplifiers, guitar guitar amplifiers is where vacuum tubes have always been the king. And uh, because they, one advantage of vacuum tubes is when you do push them very very hard into distortion, they clip very beautifully sounding they mm -hmm. they sound good when they clip and that's that's why you see vacuum tubes in guitar amplifiers predominantly um they also work on very high voltages so you have tons of headroom and um you know you're you're not going to really reach that clipping point unless you design the whole thing to be a distortion box like that so we we can mm -hmm. give you high you know because it's running on high voltage you've got very high headroom and therefore very high fidelity. And um, so now we're talking about how they're useful as a hi-fi uh, audiophile piece of equipment, too, right? Sure. Well, um, you know that the inherent sound of a of a well-designed vacuum tube circuit is very clean. And you know, to create a sound like we would for a pro audio thing, we can invoke the sound of the transformers around the thing. We can add equalizers and other signal processors to, to make the sound or filters or to make the sound sound differently. But inherently as it, as just a pure gain block, a well-designed uh, vacuum tube circuit is uh, very good sounding and very respectful. Uh, the measurements are very respectful and so on as well. Mm -hmm. 
So with that headroom, that means that you know if we use vacuum tube design for uh, an amplifier, a preamplifier, and an amplifier, um, we're going to get a clean transmission of the signal and less likely to to clip it and things like that. And, and we might be more likely to to run into those limitations if we're doing a solid state design. Or am I just taking this too far? Well, sure. If if you've got something that's running you know, running on a 300 volt rail, or, you know, maybe by the time it reaches the tube, it's at least a uh, hundred volts. That's, you've got a lot more voltage swing than you do uh, with some integrated circuits running on plus and minus 15 volts, which, which, which would give you, right. you know, 30, say 30 volts possible. So, you know, a hundred volts is bigger than 30 volts, just say. Yeah. And this this is why I have a problem with the 500 series format is because the power supply for that you're running plus and minus 18 volts and you just it's I can give you I can give you four channels of vacuum tube mic pre with you know a 300 volt power supply dedicated to those vacuum tubes in a chat in a 19 inch chassis for 2500 bucks and you'd actually have to spend more money in 500 series world to get an inferior result <laughs> running off of, you know, plus or minus 18. Yeah. Even um, if you add some, you know, voltage doubling and tripling circuits after those rails, you, you're still not, you're still not as good as what I could dedicatedly give you with my power supply. So let me clarify a couple of things. Um, I, Lovingly refer to our listeners as the rock stars. So rock stars, um, when Ivana's talking about the 19-inch, she's talking about just like a full-size rack unit and designing the gear to go in there. And the 500, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, those are the, the modular ones where you can get a lunchbox rack and you can just sort of swap out different components from different manufacturers and put them in like that. Um, so that's that's interesting to hear you talk about it like that. Well, let me let me ask you this question: Why design with tubes? Then, what what is the reason why you guys use tubes? I mean, maybe you just said it, and I'm asking you to say it again. But why is it important to use tubes in this pro audio design? Well, it's for utmost fidelity. You know, number one, it's it's what we think sounds the best. And again, um, you know, compared to some solid state circuits. The tubes are just going to sound more pleasing. They have more headroom. If you do reach the limits, it's going to be a very graceful and beautiful sounding clip, not an abrupt, you know, crunchy kind mm -hmm. of sound that you can get if you run out of room on a on a solid state device. And um, you know, also, I, I love a lot of things about vacuum tubes. You know, if if the tube eventually it will wear out and not everything about tubes is great. You know, they eventually do wear out. There's eventually a limited, a fixed amount of electrons that can fly off the cathode. But fortunately, you can just unplug that bottle and plug another one in. So they're, they're, they're for us, I mean, they're pretty easy to work on and service. And we, we do design our products so that they can be serviced and fixed. And I, I, I was on a panel a couple of years ago with a bunch of guys at the NAMM show and, and some of the guys are software guys. And the question from the audience was like, well, what do you expect the uh, lifetime expect expectancy of this plug-in format is going to be? And they, they were talking about that and how, you know, software changes and updates and 
version 3.1 and this and that. And I just leaned in the mic and I'm like, you know, my product's going to work in 50 years. <laughs> it's no problem. You know, you just, you, you probably want to recap it at some point, change out the electrolytic caps and, and plug in some new tubes at some point when they go noisy. But otherwise, there's no reason why that manly micre couldn't work 50 years or even 100 years, you know? That's wild. Yeah. And, you know, Steve Albini talks a lot about that um, in terms of why analog tape is a much better archival format than digital as well. Same, similar reasoning that it's just going to work. You're going to be able to put it on a machine and play it back 100 years from now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Ivana, let me let me uh, explain one more thing to the listeners, um, Rockstars. When we're talking about clipping, that's you know, if your waveform is sort of going up and going down and going up, and it's got a nice curve to it, um, as you push the levels way up and it starts to clip, it begins to square out at the top if it's in a solid state clip, like um, Ivana's describing. And and I guess in a tube, it tends to clip in a little bit softer, more rounded fashion. Is is that a somewhat accurate? Yeah, if you if you look at the uh, sinusoidal sinusoidal sin, uh, waveform on a scope, and you 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 drive a lot of input signal into the unit so that you're overloading the circuit, you're you're giving it more than it was designed to handle. With a good with a good tube circuit, you'll see you'll see that point. It'll it won't just all of a sudden square off and make an abrupt 90 degree angle on the top. Like you sliced off the top of the, yeah of the waveform. It'll, it'll just start rounding off and make, it'll eventually get squared off, but it, it comes about very gradually, not abruptly. And then yeah. that sound, that sounds good. And, um, and that translates into things like even order versus odd order harmonics to the well, signal that's and all more, that kind of stuff. That's more a function of topology that uh, is valid for both solid state and vacuum tube circuits. So your odd order harmonics are going to come about from usually a push-pull circuit. And your even order harmonics, and this is all very general, mm-hmm. are usually going to We, gonna we be, like general. <laughs> yeah, they're usually going to be produced by a single-ended circuit. What do we need to know about odd order harmonics versus even order harmonics? How, does that, how might we expect that to sound? Um, the odd order ones do not sound as good as the even order ones. Definitely. Right, there you go. That's there an easy go. way to remember it. But there, there's a lot of different distortion types out there. Um, there's intermodulation, you know, uh, there's all kinds of, di- in, I, I, I sat through a talk one time where the guy, I think he was from JBL, might've been Sean Olive actually, if I'm not mistaken, he played different types of distortion and we he inverted the phase of one channel so we only were hearing the minus the difference between the the two channels so it was hmm. all it canceled out everything that was the same so everything that was the same was the the music itself and all we were listening to was the actual distortion product like and what was clipped off in other words uh, well, there were different types of distortion. Like, here's what IM distortion sounds like. This is what even order sounds like. This is what odd order sounds like. This, and, and um, it was fascinating to to listen through. There's all kinds of different types of distortion, not just even and odd. Um, so that's something. If I can find that demo online somewhere, I'd I'd uh, send, send you. Send it to us. All right, great. Yeah. Um, another quick question, and you don't. If you don't have an answer to this, that's fine. 
But do you feel like you've seen an evolution of um, what kinds of distortion appeal to people over time with, with like electronic music and digital creations and things like that? That's a cool question. Yeah, actually, I've been reflecting upon that uh, a lot in this last year because we we came out we came out with a a new manly variable mu unit called the manly new mu, and it uses the same front end as the variable mu. But then after the gain reduction stage, the amplifying stage is high voltage, discrete and solid state, uh, discrete and FET solid state, not vacuum tubes and not transformers. And the overall result is, is a lot cleaner and less colored than the historic variable mu. And I, I was thinking back about why that's attractive today is because when the variable mu came out in history in like 1994, 1995, um, there was still a lot of recording to tape and it, it fit in with that sound. And also the digital converters of the day and your ADATs and DA88s and things like that that were being used a lot, um, they weren't, those converters were kind of hard sounding and they were crying out for a unit that would kind of round off the sound and, 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 you know, Mm. add that big sloppy glue over everything. Like we used to say, like, it was like pouring a big bowl of cream over the mix and converters and technology of the time and the sound at the time really cried out for the variable mu to come and help me sound good. These days you look around, uh, digital recorder is what, you know, 99% of everybody's using and, um, the converters are wonderful these days and everything. And you don't need all that additional coloration necessarily, especially for, you know, uh, electronic music and stuff we've seen, you know, guys just want it to come in and, and get the levels adjusted and go out. They don't need all this additional color. Yeah. Um, other projects, you know, if you're doing a, a real uh, grungy rock band or something, you might want to add more of that into it. So maybe the variable mu would be the right call for that. So, yeah, that's it's definitely a factor, and it it's something. Um, it's my job to kind of interface with people and pay attention to these trends and listen to people talk about how they record so that I can incorporate that into what we're going to build next, you know? Well, I mean, a shout out about the Stingray. One of the things I saw was when you guys put an iPod dock on a Stingray. I mean, you were were just like, I like that you were thinking outside the box. I like that you were taking an industry that might've been precious before and just saying, you know what, I'm going to put my sort of creative ideas into it. Um, Maybe you were bringing back that, you know, the, the, the sketching and the photography and the design stuff that um, was just, you know, you personally and just saying, screw it, I'm just going to, I'm going to put my ideas into all this stuff. And, and it's obviously worked. But oh, I will, I've I will say this. I've definitely done that before. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so I'll say this too. I, I think it's cool that you've got the very moo and the very new moo. Uh, but when you guys go to the very moo moo, like in Homer Simpson style, <laughs> then maybe you're, you're headed down the wrong side of the hill at that point. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. So um, how about telling us a little bit? So I think tubes are really fascinating. When I first started learning more about them, uh, there's a there's a great, I'm trying to remember the books I read. There's a great RCA tube manual book that's sort of a classic Bible of it. The, and I wonder if well, you want to- the Radiotron- Yeah. Tell us, tell us what we need it. to know about, about the books to read. And maybe just give us a little, like, let's shrink down like the, the incredible journey and, and tell us what's going on inside a tube for, oh. as an introduction. 
Wow. Um, I'd say, I'd say there's some really, I know there are some really great resources on the internet and as a favor for everyone, let me just dig up those links after we're done with the interview and you can post them up on okay, there. Cool. I, I don't have those off the top of my head. Let's, well, we'll there was the, at, I know we'll there was the RCA, the RCA book. Yeah, was a great it might one. be a little above that. It's a little more advanced, but I, I, I've got my, my head around. I, I know of a really great website and we'll get that to you. Okay, cool. Do you feel like you can just kind of uh, generally describe what's happening inside a tube so that we, we have a little bit more of an understanding? Okay. Well, um, you've got this thing called the cathode and it's a little cylinder inside the tube and you've got to heat it up with the thing called the heater and the heater's like a light bulb filament and it gets hot and it heats up the cathode. And the cathode has electrons that jump off of it and are flying towards this thing uh, called the anode. And in the, in between it, there's a thing called the grid. And uh, depending on how much voltage you put on that grid, will regulate how many cathode, uh, how many electrons are flying off that cathode into the anode. So it, it the grid nice. is what controls the flow of electrons from the cathode to the anode. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why the, the British call a vacuum tube a valve because it's kind of like a water faucet valve. You know, you're regulating the, the flow and thus the amplification. And that's uh, kind of how it works. It's all sealed up. It, a vacuum is pulled inside the glass because uh, as Edison was figuring out, um, if you've got this heater element or a filament in air, it will eventually burn out. I mean, and uh, if you vacuum and remove all the air molecules, it'll last for a much, much longer time. So that's why it's, it's in a vacuum. That's why. And so if you, if you break that vacuum, if you break the glass, as we used to joke, all the vacuum will leak out. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see usually a, a sign that you have a broken tube is that there's a white uh, powder inside the glass and that that's from the material inside a thing called the getter that was used to remove all the last oxygen in the tube that metal turns into a white powder when you break the vacuum so that that's your handy tip for the day if you see a tube that's all chalky white inside just throw it away because it does not work anymore okay cool yeah i think i have seen tubes like that hopefully yep. they're not still in my guitar amps right now Nope. Just throw them away. You cannot fix them and they're no good anymore. All right. And so without getting technical, I will, um, I'll, uh, bat this one back to you here. Rockstars. I like to think of it as, um, that grid that controls the flow of electrons in a tube. That's the whole essence of what makes audio circuit design work in terms of amplification, which is what a lot of circuits are. So when you have sound that comes into a microphone, it's a teeny tiny signal, and then it comes down cables, and then it needs to get amplified into a bigger signal so that it can either get you know put to a tape or to Pro Tools, and then, it, and then it comes out of your Pro Tools, and it needs to get amplified to a yet bigger signal so it can come out of your speakers and be loud enough for you to hear it. But when you, if you want to make a small signal into a bigger signal, and Ivana, Ivana, you can shoot me down for this this analogy here, but that's what what happens in a circuit. You have you can put a small signal on something like a grid, which can control a much bigger signal flowing through a tube, 
as part of a circuit design, and that's how you amplify sound, right? Yeah, pretty much. There, there's some other factors to consider too, including the impedance at which you're working. So if you take a microphone circuit, for example, you the microphone capsule in the condenser mic might be working at an impedance. Impedance is kind of like resistance. And so for that, yeah. we're going to quote ohms, um, which is the unit of measure for, resi for resistance. And your, your microphone capsule might be operating at, say, half a billion ohms, so 500 mega ohms, just say, just pretend. That's a lot of ohms. It's a lot of ohms. In fact, it's barely conducting, right? Which, and and, let me help, let me keep know, helping. So, Roxas, that means electricity is having a tough time flowing through that capsule. Good. Uh, right? <laughs> kind, of, kind of, sort of, yeah. It, you know, like the, the, if you take the grease on your nose and smear it on the circuit board, you might create another 500 mega ohm conductive path. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's wow, like, okay. Um, that's why uh, with microphones, you want to, you want to, Pay very close attention to those high impedance parts of the circuit and keep them very clean. Okay, so you've got to get from that microphone capsule from half a billion ohms eventually someday to your loudspeaker that might be, say, eight ohms, right? So besides amplifying the very tiny signal from your capsule into your mic pre, which is going to amplify it some more and get that into your A to D converter, and that gets converted into digits and then it comes maybe it's going to come back out into analog world at you know maybe a volt at you know 50 ohms or something like that it eventually needs to get into your loudspeaker at 8 ohms so part of the other part of the job of electronics is to convert the working impedances from one thing to another and from staged in inside each amplifier you've got you know you might be coming out of that first tube at 100 kilo ohms impedance, and then you've got to get out of the box at, you know, 50 ohms. So there's a lot of impedance conversion that's going on as well. Okay. Well, um, impedance is one of those things that's always a little bit mystified me, but um, knowing that you need to convert from one to another uh, is an important thing to know, I think. Sure. I mean, your guitar, your guitar pickup might be working at a million ohms at one mega ohm. And then as you know, your guitar speaker needs to be eight ohms. So um, the, the output transformer of your guitar amplifier is actually taking the vacuum tubes anodes, you know, from say a thousand ohms at that point in the circuit. And it's the transformer's job is to convert that thousand ohms into your eight ohms for your speaker. So that's again, it's it's got that transformer is going to have two jobs. Number one, re remove all the DC voltage off the, the vacuum tubes. And secondly, convert that say thousand ohms into eight ohms. Is it also fair to think of that um, impedance and resistance um, in terms of literally like physical movement? So a, a microphone capsule is vibrating, but it's not doing a lot of physical movement, whereas a speaker, which has a much lower ohms, eight ohms, has to physically be able to move back and forth with the coil as part mm. of what it does? I don't know if that's entirely true. All right, well, you, we'll chalk can, that up to... <laughs> you, you, can, you can design the coils of a loudspeaker to be 16 ohms or, or, you know, 
400 ohms or whatever. And it, it doesn't, ex I don't know if it exactly equates to the mo motor movement of the cone. Cause that would also be a factor. Cause that's like a little motor. That would also be a factor of the magnet involved in all yeah. that. All right, so I don't well, know if it's entirely fair to put it that way. We'll chalk that up one uh, that one up to a recording studio rock stars myth. <laughs> um, all right, well, great. So, Ivana, um, before we m take a break here, let's let me ask you about this uh, this microphone, the Manly Reference Silver Mic. While we're on the topic of mics, I know ah, you had cool. mentioned that as something you wanted to uh, tell us all about. Yeah, that that mic, I you know, everyone had been like, Hey, y'all haven't come out with a new tube mic since 1990, basically. And it's like, yeah, you're right. And our most popular product that we manufacture is the mainly reference cardioid mic. That's the black and red one. You've seen it all over the place. It's, a, I, I would say it's probably the world's most popular modern tube vocal mic. Definitely. Cool. And, um, so that, that, that guy's been super popular. So, um, people were asking us, Hey, do a new mic. We want a new mic from you guys. And I was thinking about that capsule that David Josephson makes. that was based on the, the Sony, uh, C37A. And it, it's a really cool capsule design that uses a mechanical vent in the back plate to change the polar pattern, the pickup pattern from Omni to cardioid. And I saw a, a, breach in the market nobody else was making any microphone with that capsule except for david josephson himself mm -hmm. and um i'm like yeah send me down one of those capsules because he he made those capsules for groove tubes in the in the late 90s and uh, aspen, yeah. aspen Pittman had a model on using that capsule at the time but that's been long out of production so i'm like yeah send me one of those capsules down let's start playing with it and we developed this um a new circuit for it. It's not the same as it's not trying to be a copy of the old Sony microphone, but the, the sonic characteristic of that mic of the Sony mic and with the manly mic, it's, it really follows that capsule a lot. So we've got a, a different in modern and more quiet, uh, tube circuit. And, um, we've got, uh, a version of our switching power supply that we've been using in our most recent products. We've got a, a two rail version of that for the tube mic. And uh, that's a switching supply that was custom designed for us that can work all around the world. It's way quieter and um, uh, it's, a, it's a superior supply than the older linear supplies we were using. It's really you, you can travel around the world. You don't have to change the volts. It's got a lot oh, of advantages. Cool. And um, so, and then we package it in this really cool looking uh, finish that I came up with. And it, it's a beautiful microphone. And it, it's got this real rich and creamy middle character that, that is very reminiscent of the original Sony mics. And some younger people maybe haven't in, encountered those Sony mics in the wild because maybe they're not working at a big studio or something, but the, yeah. the, cat, the cats in LA I, I work with, you know, they're like, oh my God, that Sony mic's my favorite. I love using it on everything, you know, so it's actually yeah. super versatile mic, uh, especially. So that's the C C37, is that the one? Yeah, uh, especially for uh, guitar cabinets, it's a natural for that because it, it's got a, a gently rolled off top end so you don't get all yeah. the noise associated with the guitar that's what i think of when i remember working with those mics is a very like a um soft isn't the right word but 
not harsh, you know? I Correct. Like it was very accommodating for tones that I wanted. Drums could be in your mm-hmm. face without kind of, you know, ripping your head off. Right. Top end and stuff like that. And then you get a, if you get a kind of um, a guy singing with like a lot of kind of throat noise that gets distracting, that silver mic is a really good choice for that as well because it, it doesn't cool. accentuate those annoying sounds, you know. Well, that's it's very a exciting. Very versatile mic and really very proud of it. So it's a cool piece and, I, and it, it, it embraces all the, all the most modern, uh, thinking and, you know, almost three decades of working with microphones, all our knowledge is put into that mic. What are some of the features that we would see as, as, um, variables on the mic? Do we see, you know, variable pickup patterns and pads and roll offs and things like that? Um, yeah, there's, uh, what is on there? There's a, there's a, um, a high pass filter on it. You can change it, you know, through the little key that we provide. You stick that in the back of the capsule, and you can change the pickup pattern from omni to cardioid. Um, and um, it's just it's just super versatile and cool. and easy well, to use. <laughs> I'm familiar also with the Josephson mics. I, I'm, I hope I don't get the the model wrong. Was it maybe the E22, the the Tom mic that was designed with Steve Albini, um, the sort of a side address. And that one also sounds wonderful. So I'm, mm. I'm excited to hear what you guys have created like that. Well, David Josephson was the, the he uh, created the gold, the Manly Gold Mike capsule for us um, in 1990, and we've been working with him since then. And he's been a, a fantastic partner cool. to have. Yeah, and I'm, I'm getting it Very right. That's the same Josephson that I was referring. Yeah, to. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, sure so that, that that's up. a. That's an American-made capsule, that one, which is is rare and expensive. (laughs) Well, Rockstars, we'll take a break here for a minute, and we'll come back in for the jam session, and I'm probably going to ask Ivan a few more questions about recording. Um, So we'll we'll take, take a moment, and we'll see you in a moment for the jam session. Roswell Pro Audio brings you microphone design that is out of this world. Endorsed by a growing list of artists and producers like Phil Collin of Def Leppard, Ross Hogarth, who's recorded Van Halen, Ziggy Marley, and the Doobie Brothers, and Super Dupes, working with Drake, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. These are all rock stars that have discovered just how great Roswell microphones sound. Check out the Mini K47, which uses a capsule modeled on the one in the vintage U47 at a street price of only $299, or the beautiful Delphos condenser microphone with a capsule tuned like the vintage U67 with great clarity and far lower noise at a street price of only $899. In fact, you are hearing my voice right now on the beautiful Delphos microphone. These mics are carefully crafted by hand and immediately feel good even before you plug them in and hear how great they sound. These are well-built microphones that will last you and your studio a lifetime of great recording. Check out more audio examples of these awesome mics at roswellproaudio.com. Hey, Rockstars, we're back. We're going to jump into the jam session. My guest today is Ivana Manley from Manly Labs. Ivana, are you ready to jam? Let's rock, Rockstars. Sweet. All right, so before I go into sort of my usual outro questions, I thought I'd just ask you a couple more things. The massive passive EQ, the very mood compressor, uh, wonderful pieces of equipment. I know you are now doing a line of plugins with U- Universal Audio too. It, I don't know if you want to talk about that for just a moment, but I thought I'd 
quickly spin you into whether or not you'd like to share some of the ways that you've seen people use these for various instruments in the studio for, you know, not not necessarily in the mixing mastering stage, but whether people are using these tools um, in sort of the multi-track environment. Oh, sure. I mean, they were, you mean the plugins or the hardware? Or well, or all? well we've, we've talked a bit about the hardware. Let's, let's talk about the plugins because you and haven't really plugins. had a chance to tell us about that too. Well, the plugins, uh, we, I, I held out from working with any software companies for a really long time. And in fact, in the late nineties, one of the first advertisements we did in mix magazine was, was a photograph of me scuba diving underwater with my scuba mask on holding a vacuum tube. And the tagline was, this is a plugin as in you can plug the tube into the socket, you know, nice. <laughs> it was kind of making fun of, of, um, early digital plugins at the time. Um, the relationship with Universal Audio developed from my my personal friendship with Erica McDaniel, who's the longest uh, employee at, at UA. And we became pals, and we've been best friends all, all these years. We met initially at a trade show when uh, we blew a fuse, and I was running around the convention center at the uh, Rye in Amsterdam looking for another American audio company. Like, does anyone have a, a one in, a one and a quarter inch one amp slow blow fuse <laughs> help? Oh, no. So uh, I saw this girl at this new company, universal audio, and they had these LA two way things and all. And I'm like, y'all got a fuse here. And yeah. So we became, we hung out later that during the show, we, we became total best friends. So it's, it's a testament to why trade shows are still valid and important to to make friends and to network and yeah. not work in a bubble. And uh, also um, being being friends with her, and then you know later Bill Putnam, the owner of the company, and and other people at UA, I could see the integrity of the whole company was was definitely uh, uh, who I wanted to work with. You know, I knew I could trust them, and they they would execute a very um, a very um, good version of the hardware product, a very faithful version. So, yeah, it seems like everything they make is really high quality. Yeah, um, you know, not every product they do, not every partner they work with holds them to holds their feet to the fire the same like we do. Or I know Dave Durr, the Distressor plugin is also very accurate to the high yeah. hardware. Some companies don't really get as involved as as some of us do. So when UA are developing a new plugin for us, um, we we work together with them to ensure that that the plugin is very faithful to the hardware piece. And that's I think that's the right way to do it. Yeah, measuring it, making sure the distortion products are the same, making sure the frequencies are all what they're supposed to be in the levels and all that kind of stuff. And so we make sure it's very accurate. And I'd say, you know, if you had to put a number on it, maybe it's 88% of the real thing, but it sure is a lot cheaper. Right. <laughs> so for 300 bucks, you know, you can get a massive passive and run it whatever, seven or nine times on your nine tracks or whatever. And that's yeah. a lot less expensive than, you know, like 5,000 bucks for two channels. So, well, so what are some ways that you've seen, if, if it's fair to, for me to take you into the studio, um, what are some ways that you've seen people really 
effectively use, you know, the massive passive uh, and or the very mu or any of your your other compressor um, on drums, for example. You know, I, you honestly, I don't really have too much to share about that. I don't, I don't precisely get involved in that on that level in the recording studio. Honestly, okay. and right. I'm not going to make any bullshit that I do. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, then let me um, let me ask you something more about. Let me see what have I got here. Um, That's a good question to ask an an actual recording engineer. Fair enough. Fair enough. I I didn't know if you had sort of been collecting great examples or stories from people, but let me ask you a little bit about the company aspect, and this probably ties into you know jam session questions too. But what advice would you like to share um, for somebody who's thinking about starting their own company? And I don't know if you can feel like you can comment on a small scale just about you know even if it's just operating a studio really well or if they're thinking about doing a larger startup around a record label or getting into gear design themselves do you do you have any advice you want to share about that yeah you know I, it it's a daunting task to just uh just say hey i'm going to start a company right now i would the first advice is definitely go work for another company and get into the industry or sector that you want to be in Glean from that, you know, pay attention to organizational structures of the company. Mm -hmm. Um, How do they do purchasing? How do they, you know, how do they organize their finances, say? How do they structure? How does the owner structure it, you know, for tax purposes? A lot of boring things. Uh, What kind of insurance, liability insurance do you have? You you know, you did, there's definitely a lot of boring things to do with a business that you need to pay attention to, like bookkeeping, legality, compliance, um, insurance, all that kind of stuff. Making you, a business. You don't have to invent a, the wheel for everything yourself. Yeah, you don't have to. I would say, you know, pay attention at, at your first, second, third, fourth, and fifth jobs. You know, you know, look at how the administrational structure of that little business is going. Um, and then make a business plan because you have to be able to, to budget. And that, that's something I don't think we ever did on the, in the old days, we were running by the seat of our mm-hmm. pants all the time. And that was probably the, the worst mistake, although it <laughs> it's fueled by enthusiasm. Um, you know, you want to look at what your, your overheads and your costs are going to be, and then try to predict like, well, if I book this room for these many hours and I'm getting this rate, can I meet my rent? You know, very, very basic things like that. You need to yeah. be able to figure out. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you about integrity. So, um, you know, that's obviously a really important thing. You've been able to maintain a real integrity with, with the company and the equipment at Manly Labs. It's known for that. Um, you described Universal Audio as doing that too, uh, that, but that can feel really daunting for people at times because, you know, what what do you have as far as advice in terms of how do you maintain the integrity? Does it mean you can never make mistakes? Does how do you balance that out so that you can really go towards, you know, I'd a career and a company? It's really centered okay. around honesty, integrity. The basis of integrity has to be honesty. So even if I make a mistake, and I do. I'm not going to be so insecure to try to hide it or say I didn't do that mistake. 
it's so easy to say, oh, yeah, I fucked that up. I screwed that up. Uh, yeah. Let's now work on a solution for it. So focusing on the solution for the problem, but um, accepting the blame when when you do screw something up and it, and it happens. We're all human and we've all made mistakes. And um, I, I don't like the attitude of the don't explain, uh, you know, don't admit you're wrong thing. I, right. I, I don't like that at all. I don't but like that at all. It seems there's another level of integrity of the quality of the product too. Like, um, do you find that uh, it's easy to avoid setting your sights on products and designs that might be forgettable in the future versus ones that really are lasting and high quality? Well, that that's what we've always strived for. We've always been in the kind of high end of the market in um, – yeah, that that's been our shtick all along. You know, there's other right, products so just, that are in a much lower price class that are disposable, <laughs> but that's not where we're at. So we, yeah. that just that's more a function of where we've chosen to be in the market, really. Well, and cool. with you know handmade American handmade manufacturing and and not you know outsourced cheaper stuff. Yeah. Well, it sounds like I think the a key takeaway for me is to just hear you talk about that being a choice. You know, it's just something yeah. that you should choose to do as a as a brand, as an and as a business direction, whether it's your recording studio or whether you're manufacturing equipment. Yeah, um, but integrity integrity of character is I think as much import as is more important than anything and being able to admit when you're wrong and uh, to not lie about things. I'm, I'm a very honest person and it, I mean, to me it's efficient. You know, you've only got one story to remember, which was the truth. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, that's, that's a good quote right there. Um, all right. Well, let me jump into some of the jam session questions. Um, when you started out in, I guess not necessarily in recording, but in, you know, what you're doing as a career manufacturing um, and design, what was holding you back? Well, as we discussed earlier, I think it was uh, just being young was and uh, having a, a large amount of energy and wanting to learn everything and just trying to be patient as well. And people around me not being very patient that was that was hard to grow through. As an as an adult, um, as an older person, an older Ivana, I I think um, what's really gotten in my way, especially with just working on the computer so much is I got diagnosed late in life with ADD, ADHD. Hmm. And it, it is hard because I, I want to get into, sometimes I've got a, you know, computer coding thing I need to be working on, but it's with all the distraction of people hit me by email and Facebook and phone calls and texts. And, you know, it, it's, my brain just bounces all over the computer all day and it's very difficult to, um, to actually get my brain into a focus mode to do some serious, some serious work that requires my brain a lot or some creative work. And I think today that, um, my creativity seems hampered. Um, well, sometimes I, I, it, it comes in little bursts here and there, but I, I wish I had more control over when that happens. And, and if it, came, came about more often. Um, well, I think we all struggle with that on a certain level. I know I certainly do. And especially the more I work in computers, the more difficult it is because a computer is sort of like everything at you all at once. 
Yep. It's capable of, of so many things. So I'm just brainstorming, but here's my tip, Ivana. Um, hop on your motorcycle, leave your phone at home, and just take your painting stuff in your uh, in your canvas and just go go to a, yeah, a no sunny kidding. field for an hour or two. <laughs> exactly. Even just commuting <laughs> to the factory on the motorbike uh, actually totally helps my brain, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, so now, um, what was... Would you like to share with us some of the best advice you re- remember receiving? Yeah, um, I, I'm real good friends with Paul Wolf, and Paul Wolf, uh, he he owned API for a while. Um, he, he had Tone Lux company, and he's doing a thing called Fix Audio, and he's also done a lot of audio design for a lot of a lot of companies. And he's one of my very very best friends, and has been one of my very best friends since the late '90s, and. I remember him uh, talking to him one day. Just this again is like right after David Manley left, and the company was just about coming into my hands. And um, he said, "You know, you need to get David Manley off the faceplates, get him off out of the owner's manuals, get him off the website. The future of the company is you, Ivana Manley, and you need to be branding for the future, not the past." And that was like a big light bulb because he was right. I was kind of hanging on to the past, but you know, people out there, there's a history, but really we need to be talking about the future and what we're going to do for you tomorrow. And that was a, a wonderful piece of advice. And it, it really gave me confidence and empowered me to, to move the company forward. That's great. And thanks to, you know, thanks to Paul. And he continues to be one of my best friends on the planet. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> you rock, Paul. I haven't met you yet, though. <laughs> um, all right. So how about uh, sharing a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something the rock stars could use on their next session in the studio? And I'm going to preface this by saying, uh, you know, just to get you off the hook for not feeling like a recording engineer, um, how about something that you know about using the the equipment you make really effectively? Anything? Well, again, we, we, we talked about this a little earlier, but I want to hammer this home because it, it's it's something that I think is really eroding the the potential of good recordings out there. Is guys, rock stars, you guys record with your ears, not your eyes. You know, shut off the screen, turn the knobs without reference to what you're looking at, and try to listen to what you're doing. You know, and. I think that's really important. We have to remember we're in the music business, we're in the audio business, and that that's ear centric. Yeah. So close your eyes and listen to what you're doing, and and see is that, I'm yeah, it looks good. Yeah, whatever. Does it sound better? That's that's what we need to hear. That's great. Well, I'm still waiting for somebody to design a, a plug-in that is controlled by just a lump of modeling clay and you can just reach out and just kind of squish it around with your hands and just That's cool. <laughs> coax it into a shape until everything sounds good and you have no idea what it did. Record with your hands, <laughs> not your ears. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much, Lidge. <laughs> Sorry. No, I mean, I'm listening, but I'm, but I'm gesturing. Right. <laughs> All right, cool. So how about, um, you go dancing to architecture again. Yeah, there I go. <laughs> Screwing that all up. Um, how about sharing a uh, favorite hardware tool? Um, I don't know how you want to spin this because usually I ask like something physical that makes sessions better. Maybe there's something physical that you like to have, you know, through your work and and career that makes it all go better. Man, I tell you, when I used to go into precision mastering in Hollywood, they, 
they also owned a coffee roasting company. And in the early days of that company, they were roasting the coffee in the back of the mastering studio facility. And nice. it smelled so damn good in there. And they I always bet. had fresh coffee, fresh high-end coffee, the Euro coffee brewing. And it was always a real treat just to, I used to just stop in just to have a cup of coffee. Um, I think the smell of good coffee is really important. I, I'm very sensitive to smell too. I just make your studio smell good. How about that? Make it a pleasant <laughs> environment. Yeah. <laughs> well, stuff. I think we try and do that by cleaning it. And then I always uh, applaud when women come here because it just always smells better when they're girls <laughs> in the studio. I mean, you know, sorry, guys. <laughs> um, how about a, a favorite software tool? Anything that sort of makes your work better? And um, usually this is spinning it on the recording stuff. And then my next questions are about like organizational tools or, or online business resources. Maybe you can spin all that together. If you got anything software related that helps make your world better and you want to share it with us. Well, of course, I'm going to plug those universal audio plugins. So it's mainly plugins on the UA platform. Indeed. <laughs> um, again, not being a user uh, myself, I'm, I don't really have too much to contribute on that level. Um, you know, in, in software world, um, Excel, the Microsoft Excel or, you know, a spreadsheet program is still, uh, I think everybody should gain a decent control of that program. It, it makes, makes a lot of organizational tasks and, uh, calculations and, uh, things yeah. very, run very easily and uh, saves a lot of time and, uh, having a proficiency in Excel, I think is a very important program. And I use Google Docs like crazy. Sure, yeah, even better. But I am thinking of something that I want to ask you about. So one of the challenges as a studio is keeping bits and pieces and little things organized and making systems that maybe make it easy for interns and assistants to know where things belong and and where to find them. And then also um, having a system for maintenance so that things that need repair can get tracked and, and fixed. Do you have any tips for us based on your experience in manufacturing that we could learn from? Yeah. You know, um, remember I was talking about, um, paying attention at your early jobs to how things are organized. I did that. And I, my first job in high school was working in a picture framing shop in Atlanta and my, my neighbor owned the shop and I, I was, building picture frames and cutting mats and cutting glass and cutting my hands. And, um, I was friends with the lady that did the purchasing and I, you know, it just, my eye would just fall on her purchasing log. And this is, this was in the mid 1980s and we didn't have computers at all. So we had, you know, a piece of paper with that had been gridded out and you had each page was a supplier and it was a log of what you were ordering, how much you paid, when you ordered it, when it was coming in and when it came in. So you had this record that later, um, when I went to work at VTL, they had no purchasing log at all. I mean, it, it was very loosely run at the time. Um, if, if, uh, you looked in the bin and there was no more 10 K resistors, you'd go find one and stick it on Luke's desk and say, Hey, we need more of this. And maybe it would get ordered and maybe not. Yeah. And I saw the chaos of that was because he would maybe forget to order the part. And then the whole production was hung up on a stupid resistor. So I took a Sharpie and a piece of paper and drew out a grid of what I 
vaguely recall that the frame shop, like they were using, and made, you know, an analog purchasing log for the company. And then I made an analog inventory log and so on. And then those things uh, were later converted converted into databases in, you know, early computers in the 90s, in the early 90s, and then into Excel, and then later into a more uh, advanced relational database um, that we use now, like FileMaker, which mm-hmm. is owned by Apple. And so um, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's kind of cool how, you know, an analog plug-in, you know, is an, is a computerized approximation of this piece of hardware. Well, these databases that, that we use to organize our business and organize systems and things, those are, you know, computerized versions of what used to be analog things on paper. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to, to even start with paper, you know, start with a, a grid um, which like a calendar is a grid, but your calendar is also a database in the computer. Right. Okay. So you can use a database and then visually reorganize it with a program like, like Excel to some extent or something more advanced like FileMaker to, to visually present it in a more useful manner. Um, that's that's advanced computer stuff, but you know, starting with a piece of paper in a grid or a whiteboard or something like that to help. Um, so, in other words, like just, just just let it evolve from the simplest version of what you might need in your studio to begin with, and then sort of port it over to the computer as needed. Yeah, if if you're of the computer type, if that that kind of geeky type, not everybody is wired to do it that way yeah. either. Or it might be a good time to hire somebody who is. <laughs> what about physically finding stuff in an environment like manufacturing where you need to go find this small item and you know how to find it and you know that it's going to be there when you need it and you know where to put it back? Any any tips about that kind of stuff? Well, um, well you know, larger larger studios will, will have a database. They'll have stickers they've printed out with barcodes a lot of times inventory tags and things like that that's that's one thing um i in our situation it's it's very much database driven mm-hmm. but it also relies on people always updating the more recent location of where it is so that's All the right. problem with databases is if they're not updated and accurately updated then they're not worth anything at all so okay that's fair enough that might be a good takeaway right there yeah all right well so let's jump to the uh the closing question here ivana we're going to take uh, this is a hypothetical question we're going to take the wayback machine um in this case it won't be the wayback studio machine it'll be the wayback you know like hi-fi machine or whatever um and if you could go back and find young ivana uh, driving that bus across the country and and you got to do the last leg of the journey with her and and you said, you know, I want to give you this one bit of advice on this drive. Here's the single most important thing that you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio one day yourself. And in this case, I guess it would be through design and manufacture of the equipment. What advice would you go back and give yourself if you could? Mm. I guess... Uh... Be patient is one thing because I kind of, I was very impatient. I just wanted to keep 
moving like a shark, you know, keep, keep the water across the gills. But uh, one thing it took me a few more years to learn that I wish I had learned from the, from day one is, is you're not perfect and don't be afraid to admit that you don't know something. And it took me quite a few years until my mid to late twenties to be able to be confident when someone asked me a question, Hey, do you know what this blah, blah, blah is or where this thing is? Instead of like kind of bullshitting an answer to be able to just stop and say, Nope, I don't know where that is. And I can go find out or I'll try to find out for you. But I, that, that lesson eluded me for more years than I would have liked. But I did get there half quickly after all. So it's okay. But that, that's an important lesson. I think that's encouraging because it, I think of you as somebody who's manufacturing equipment that looks and feels and sounds really pretty perfect. And um, to know that it's okay to not be perfect as part of the process making that and you can still set your sights there. I think that's pretty encouraging. Oh, thanks. Well, sometimes also on the flip side, people forget. Like they'll they'll call up and say, "Hey, I got this unit from you, and this thing is crooked here, and I, you know, I want a new one." Or you know, and it's like, dude, have a little patience, please, because humans put this thing together with their hands, and you know, we don't, not everyone is perfect all the time. You know, it's, it's yeah. very, very difficult to be perfect all the time and my perfectionism totally holds me up all the time like I, I can't even get started on a project until I can envision the whole thing completed in this perfect fashion and then I just avoid getting into it and I never get the thing done <laughs> because I you know it's just it that's that's something that really holds me up to. So I think we all need to kind of relax and remember we're human. We strive to be the best that we can, but we cannot be perfect all the time. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Well, um, Ivana, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Cheers. Please let, please let the lot, rock stars know how they can find you guys, learn more about Manly Labs. And, um, you know, if they want to even go check out the plugins, where should they go? Oh, yeah, for real. Um, we just have a Brand new website that Chris DeRay made for us, www.manly.com, M-A-N-L-E-Y. It's a beautiful website, and there should be plenty of information on there to keep everyone busy. Um, the awesome. UA, Universal Audio, are our sole authorized plug-in providers, so you want to go to uaudio.com and check out, check out all their plugins on the UAD platform. Awesome. Manly Labs is, of course, on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. And uh, slash Manly Labs is where you'll find most of that social media. And, uh, yeah, give us your feedback. We're happy to hear from you. All right, Groovy. Well, thank you so much again, Ivana. Just an absolute pleasure to hang out with you. And thanks for letting us just grill you about, you know, all the – geeky stuff like what goes on inside a tube and all that. <laughs> Such but a joy. Thank you, Lidge. It was a lot of fun. And I look forward to seeing you uh, at Winter Nam. This episode will be out after that, but um, we'll just we'll see you at the, uh, the trade shows for sure. Great. Thank you. All right, Groovy. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rockstars. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, 
All you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.